0: If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through the book of John. Now, the book of John, the way it's set up, is different than the other Gospels. It carries a different literary format, and it follows a different pattern. Now, I joked with Pastor Chad as he's taking a much-needed week off with his family. I joked this week that as we've gone through the sermon series, he's talked about the miracles, and then I've kind of landed on these red-letter rebuking parts— and I was wondering, what does that say about me? So, if you feel like I'm preaching directly to you today, I'm not. And uh, if you feel that way, I'll, I'll leave Pastor Chad's email up and you can email him directly. <laughs> I'm not preaching to anybody here except for maybe Ron. I might be preaching to you. <laughs> so, go to chapter, or John chapter 5. And we're going to be reading from verse 16 through 29. And then I'm also going to be referencing uh, the book of Daniel as well. So, John chapter 5. 16 through 29. And again, i got to talk a little bit and give you a little bit of background about the Gospel of John. And if you were here with us, we talked about a healing at the Pool of Bethesda last week. Pastor Chad talked about that specifically. I'm going to reference that a lot today because in the words that Jesus speaks in these passages, if we don't have a background, if we don't review that, we might get lost in that. But there's a couple things, again, that you got to remember if you continue on studying the book of John on your own is that it does follow a different literary pattern than the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels, they're the similar Gospels, they take on a literary pattern of a lot of action and a little bit of Jesus' words. A lot of miracles, a lot of parables and those teachings, but a lot of action. Those things are action-packed. The Gospel of John takes on a different literary pattern, and you got to pay attention to that as you're reading it. So you'll have seven distinct signs. John sets that out. He says that in his Gospel, He says that in chapter 20, that I'm going to give you signs that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There are seven signs, and then there's some commentary that Jesus provides. He teaches on his own miracles in there. So you have to understand that it takes that literary pattern. We are going to be specifically talking about some of that red letter messaging in here. And Jesus is going to talk specifically to the Hebrew and Jewish leaders who've questioned him about the healing that he did. And we talked about that last week. The second thing you have to understand about the Gospel of John is John makes zero claim that he is an unbiased witness to history of Jesus. John is a follower of Jesus. He becomes a disciple of Jesus, and then he eventually becomes an apostle. He is a biased witness, and he has an agenda. His agenda is mentioned in chapter 20, as I mentioned. He is writing these things so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's made that well known. The third thing that you have to remember about the book of John, it is, is, it is the most authoritative gospel on who Jesus is. John makes no distinction on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He makes that very clear. That is why whenever we have a new believer, we will often refer them to the book of John. Because the book of John is clear on who Jesus is. And we're going to talk about those specific passages. Because what we are looking at today Is Jesus' most authoritative claim in the book of John to date? I would argue that what we're going to read today is Jesus' most authoritative claim in the entire Gospels. And I, as I read these passages, I feel a little bit underwhelmed and unworthy to make this, to, to go through this. But we will give it our best shot. So here we go John chapter 5, and I'll read 16 through 29. As we pick up John this is directly after the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, "My father is working until now and I am working." This is this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son the Son. Father, I come to you humbly as we look at the authority of Jesus today. I just ask you to use your Holy Spirit to work through me as I speak toward the authority that Jesus is declaring in these passages. I just ask that if there's anybody who is working through what authority Jesus has in their life, that you would soften their hearts to the message of your word. And I just praise you and thank you for being a God who can meet us where we're at. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in 1997, an author by the name of Sebastian Younger took on the task of writing a book. The book was titled, A Perfect Storm. Now what Mr. Younger attempted to do was take an investigative look at what had happened to a fishing boat that had gone off seas and was lost at sea in late October of 1991. The name of that fishing vessel was the Andrea Gale. And through the work of Mr. Younger, he was able to determine that there were several things that went wrong and why that boat was lost at sea. But one of the things that he had found out was that the crew, which was crewed by six members, had a very experienced captain. The captain was going to do a last season catch in October. And I have zero experience with offshore seas fishing. But what the captain knew is that there was going to be one weather front coming through. He was aware that there would be a cold front coming in from northern Canada that would submerge on the boat while they were out there. Now, apparently, a cold front is not that big of a deal when you're offshore seas fishing. Now, this boat was 500 miles off sea when that cold front finally met them. But what the captain did not factor in was that there was also a second and a third front that converged on the boat. Now, the second front, which they did not know about, was a high-pressure system that was moving up from northern, the northern part of the United States, southern part of Canada. Now, I am not really good with this, but you all have experienced a lot of this being from Wisconsin. When a cold front meets a high-pressure weather system, you get a pretty impressive storm. Your lakefront storms here have been impressive to us as people who are not native to Wisconsin. So, that on itself... That, boat act, that activity alone would have caused the boat trouble. Two fronts, two storms converging at the same time. But unfortunately for the tragedy that, was, that bestowed the, the crew of the Andrea Gale, there was a third weather front that came through. It was a tail end of a dying hurricane, Hurricane Grace. Now that storm front was not even supposed to be close to their area, but it changed directions unpredictably like a hurricane might and converged on them all at the same time there was a three-front weather system that caused the tragedy that happened there in 1991. Now, how this relates to the story that we have read and how this relates to the first century of Jesus is that everywhere Jesus went, there was a three-front storm front that showed up everywhere he went. Everywhere Jesus walked, everywhere Jesus spoke, there was a perfect storm that converged on that moment in history. A lot of times, Jesus would leave some destruction in his wake. Destruction to the religious leaders' beliefs. Destruction to the way that they viewed the law. But oftentimes, he also brought life to that area. Everywhere Jesus walked, there was a storm. That, a perfect storm that approached. And I would argue that every time that we encounter Jesus now, that perfect storm still remains. Now, to go back to last week, we have to talk specifically about one of those storm fronts that shows up. And one of the reasons that Jesus finds himself where he's at in this predicament. That first storm front that shows up is the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Now, if you are familiar with the Christian tradition, if you're familiar with us, you will know that the Sabbath is something that was instilled by God. It's designed by God. It's given to us by God. It's spoken about in multiple places. The first place that we normally see it or we normally read about it is in Genesis 2. God has spent six days creating the world and he has looked down upon his creation and he has determined that that creation is very good. And so God metaphorically says, I'm going to rest on that day. I'm going to stop laboring. I'm going to enjoy my work. He stops and he rests and he instructs his people to do the same. Now, this picks up in the book of Exodus as well. It's talked about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is specifically designed for us not to work. We are told and instructed by God that we are to cease from working. But you have to understand the background to why God did this. Now, if you know, if you study the Old Testament, you know that the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses. The inspiration comes from God God instills this upon Moses to write down for the nation of Israel, a new nation. And God is saying that you are no longer slaves in Egypt, and I'm going to give you rest. If you're familiar with the Exodus story, we talked about it today in youth. That's why this is so important, if you teens are paying attention to me, that this is all interlinked. This is important with the Exodus story. You know that prior to going into the nation of Israel, going into Israel itself, The Israeli people were slaves in Egypt. And their job was to build bricks. That was what they were supposed to do. Bricks that were used by the empire. They worked seven days a week. That was their job. They were measured by how many bricks they could produce. Does that sound similar to our current context? Is there anybody in the room who feels like they are measured by what they can produce? That their worth is determined by their job and their work. It does for me. I've been there. I have felt that way. But God is saying that I am different. You are not measured by what you can produce. You're measured by who I am and how I feel about you. And I'm telling you that you are no longer slaves. You are no longer required to build bricks for the empire. You're to take a day and you're to rest. You're not to do work. And that's where the text ends. God says, it's against my law for you to work. And then leaves it out there. You see, we get confused when we talk about the law of God. We get confused when we talk about these things because we think that it provides us restrictions. But God is saying, I'm giving you freedom. You have the freedom to not work on this particular day. He's not trying to shackle the nation of Israel. He's releasing them. He's giving them freedom. That's what following Jesus does. It releases us from that. It provides us freedom. We are free in Christ. This is a foreshadowing of what our lives will be as we follow Jesus. But the Sabbath day ends by saying you are not to work. Here lies, the problem that we find Jesus in is that where the text ends, sometimes we, as people, like to fill it. Sometimes we often like to speak where the text does not. God says do not work, but I'm sure as a rabbi in those days, they would have been asked questions. What does that mean? What is actually work? What is that defined by? What am I not allowed to do? We always want to look at it as punitive. What can't we do? What are we forbidden from doing? And so, during Jesus' day, we often think that the Hebrew Bible was the only thing that existed, but that's not true. We actually have something that's called the Mishnah that was around during Jesus' time. And when you think of the Mishnah, the easiest way to think about that is that it is a commentary on the Hebrew Bible. This is Jewish writing that's around during the time of Jesus, but is not considered to be authoritative. But it gives specific laws by rabbis about what you're not supposed to do. So the rabbis got together, they put their heads together, they came up with this document, and they've titled 39 work behaviors that you're forbidden to do on the Sabbath. 39 categories. I'm sorry to break this to you, but one of those categories is you are not allowed to capture a deer on the Sabbath. That's why there's not a lot of Jewish people in Wisconsin, apparently. Because you're not allowed to capture a deer on the Sabbath. There's a lot of these prohibitions So a lot of people will will read this story, read the story about where Jesus heals on the Sabbath, where he tells the man to pick up his mat and walk, and people will say, well, Jesus is going against the law of Moses. He is not. He is absolutely not. He is in direct defiance with man's written law on God's law. Man's written interpretation on God's law. I hate to break it to you. We do this now. We do this today. There's many people will come up and stand up here and say things and try to put man's interpretation on God's law. I understand as I am standing here doing this that that sounds counterproductive, but I promise you, if there's anything I say here today, I urge you to check it with God's law, to check it with the word of God. If anybody speaks, any man speaks on God's law, on God's word, check it. Make sure that it stands the test. We are to go and look and God's law is to be the authority. God's word is to be the authority. So Jesus shows up and he heals on the Sabbath and he tells the man to pick up his mat and walk away. So religious leader sees this happening. They see him do this. They see this person who's been healed invalid for 38 years pick up a mat and walk and their question to them is who told you to pick up your mat they are so ingrained with the fact that somebody might have broken the mishnah that they're asking about who told him to walk and not the fact that the man has been healed they care more about this than they do about the person i make an argument that the man's been invalid for 38 years i make the argument that jesus did this on purpose This may be the first question I ask him, if I have the opportunity. Is, did you tell this man to do this? He healed on the Sabbath on purpose. The man's been invalid for 38 years. What was another day? He told him to do this. He did this on purpose. Because he wanted to cause a little disturbance. Cause a little weather front. So Jesus is asked in that moment by religious leaders... They're mad that he is healing on the Sabbath, and they're mad that he told them to work. So Jesus is confronted on this day, and he makes the most, to say it was controversial would be an understatement. He makes one of the most shocking claims that he could possibly make, and sometimes we overread it. He says to them, my father is working on the Sabbath, and so am I. So one of the problems with the Mishnah, one of the rabbinical problems that shows up, is what do you do with God? Man is not supposed to work, but what do we do with God in this particular moment? Does God stop working every seventh day? No. Flowers still continue to grow. Grass still continues to grow. The world still moves on every seventh day. If God stopped working every seventh day, my goodness, what a catastrophe that would be. So the religious leaders, the rabbis of that day, know this, so they have to have a category for God. God works independently. It's his law. He doesn't have to rest on the Sabbath. So when Jesus comes out and says, my father is working, therefore I am working, he has just made the claim that I am equal to God. I am equal to God. That explains the next passage where it says that they have conversed to try to kill him. He has committed, by their terms, blasphemy. Jesus has stepped into the story and said that I am equal to God. That is the first claim that he makes. We all come here today with some religious presuppositions or predeterminations. We all come here with that. If you're somebody who has never stepped into a church and does not know Christ you already have some predetermined positions on Jesus. If you're somebody who has been to church a long time, you've you've got these indoctrinations, you've got these things, you have some predeterminations on who Jesus is. We all have biases. It's just human nature. We all come here with that. Does it match what Jesus says? Does it match God's word? So Jesus' first claim is, I'm God. I am equal to God. In the following verses, he makes the next claim. And this is the second front. This is the second weather front that shows up. This is the second force. And that's Jesus himself. Now, if you study the book of John, just the book of John, alone, Jesus has built up a bit of a reputation for himself. The religious leaders know him as somebody who has already gone into the temple in chapter 2. He's already overturned the money changers and rebuked them. He's already done this. He's already drawn the attention of at least one Pharisee who meets with him under the cover of darkness in Nicodemus. In chapter 3, he talks about his meeting with Nicodemus. Jesus is well known. He's drawn their attention. And he's kind of built up a reputation of being a little bit of a troublemaker. Jesus is there to flip some tables. Jesus is there to cause a disturbance. I would argue that he is still doing that today. If you hear the claims of Jesus, you are forced to make one of two determinations. That he is either God or that he is crazy. There is no middle ground here. You have two determinations. He is either a God or he's crazy. He is a force that is working through and I argue that he works today in the same manner. and he works in the hearts of us. If you come to hear him and you have an encounter with Jesus, you have, you're forced to make a determination, you're forced to make a choice. So let's talk about the second powerful front in Jesus himself. And we'll talk about his claims. In the, in the next verse, in, chapter, in verse 17, he makes the claim, or, uh, sorry, verse 19, he makes the claim that the, when the father, what the father does, the son also does. He is telling you that I am equal to God, but distinct from God. I am equal to God, but yet separate. This is the first time in the book of John, at least, that you get some Trinitarian language. I am God, but yet separate. He makes that claim. The next claim that he makes in verse 21 is that I am the giver of life. I'm the giver of life. Who makes that claim? If I'm sick, if there's something wrong with me, I'll go to a doctor. And the doctor might put me through some tests, and he might try to diagnose or she might try to diagnose what's wrong with me. If they're able through the test to diagnose what is wrong with me, they'll probably prescribe me a remedy, whether it be surgery, medication, all of those things. But ultimately, a doctor cannot give me life. A doctor cannot save my life. Ultimately, I will pass from this life regardless of whoever tries to stop it. But Jesus is telling his audience, I am the source of life. I'm the giver of life. John confirms this in 1 chapter 3 when he says that all things were made through him. Jesus is claiming, I'm the source of life. We get this messed up as a culture and as a society. Hit a hot button topic here. But the reason why abortion happens is because people who advocate for this do not give God his due authority. God and Jesus, they are the source of life. We are not. As parents, we'll shepherd our children, but we are not, as humans, the source of life. God is. So when he makes this claim that he is the source of life, that's shocking. He said, I am equal to God, I am distinct from God, and I am the source of life, I am the giver of life. In the following verse, his next claim is that he is the final judge. He is the final judge of all of us. Now, if you ask anyone who's not a devout atheist, if you ask anybody from the Muslim faith, if you ask anybody from the Jewish faith, you ask any Christian, if you ask any American who may be agnostic who doesn't attend church, and you ask them, who is the final judge of humanity, they will probably give you a God answer of some sort. They might say Allah, they might say God, they might say Jesus, depending on their tradition. But they will give you some sort of God-like answer. And the reason that, it, that is, is we know as humans that we cannot, as humans, be the judge. Now we have a legal system that's set up we have a judge, we have a jury, we have all of those things. We, we pick 12 people to pass judgment to try to balance that out. But we know that the system has flaws because it's humans trying to act as judge. I'm sorry, I love you all, but in my final days, I don't want any of you to be my final judge. <laughs> and likewise, you should not want me to be your final judge. Now, the Jewish leaders in that particular context would understand when he says, they would agree that God is the final judge. They believe that. There is a sect of Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, but for the majority, of the majority of them, they believe in the resurrection. They believe there's going to be a final judgment. They believe at the end of the days that was going to happen. So they already believe that. So when Jesus steps on the scene and says, I'm going to be your final judge, Wow. Now you understand why they want to kill him. The audacity of him to make these claims. Thankfully for us, we as humans are not our final judge. And Jesus is. Jesus is our final advocate. The next claim that he makes is that he will raise the dead. Not only will he be the final judge in that moment, that he will also be the one who raises the dead. That's a shocking claim. He actually uses here twice. He says, those who hear my voice that are living will enter into eternal life. He also says, those who hear, the dead who hear my voice, will also enter into eternal life. The dead really from my understanding, don't hear voices. So what claim is he making here? He's, making that he's saying that those who have heard his voice, those have, who have passed from this life on, he will resurrect them. He will be their final judge. He raises the dead. He is making some scandalous and shocking claims in this moment. He is the next big force that shows up and says... You have to take account for me, and you have to make a choice. He is making claims now. He is making those same claims today. And whether or not you are somebody who's new and have never encountered Jesus, or whether you have been here a long time and have been, have been a follower of Jesus for a long time, you have to account for his words. That brings us to the third front, the third weather system, the third force. And that's His audience. His audience. His audience in the first century was met with a specific choice. They could either accept him as the messianic claim, the God that they claimed, he could they could make that choice. Or they could rebuke him and they could move on. They were met with that same choice. We are men with that same choice, today. Jesus has claimed that he is God. I, as I speak here, have already wrestled with that determination that he is God. Everyone in this room has to determine whether or not Jesus is God for you, whether you're going to follow him as God. He has claimed that he is the source of life. Is he the source of life for you Now? Many of us have walked through that door with different feelings. Maybe some of you have walked in feeling dead and completely broken. Jesus is the source of life for you today. Some of you have walked through the door probably feeling a little burnt out, a little tired. Jesus is the source of life for you now, today. Oftentimes we get trapped in this Belief that, and it's true, but we get trapped in this belief that eternal life starts after I die. Eternal life starts after I pass from this life. Jesus is saying I'm the source of life for you right now. Right now. The other claim that Jesus makes is that he raises those from the dead. There are some who have listened to this, who are spiritually dead. Who have come through this door hopeless. They don't know what they're going to do from here on out. How do I keep going in this life? Some of us are dealing with struggles where we feel a little worn out and a little dead. Jesus is making the claim that I can raise you from the dead I can raise you from the dead today the question is what is our response what is our response to Jesus today and his claims so as we enter the holiday season we talk about this a lot where Jesus is our savior that's all true Jesus came to this life To die for my sins. And I'm often able to accept that. That's easy for me to accept. That Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is claiming authority on your life. He's claiming kingship. How many of you have sworn your allegiance to him as your king? Now, a lot of the teens in the room have heard me say this. But the Bible is interlinked. The chapter, the the Adam and Eve story, is as very much true for us today as it was then. The problem with Adam and Eve in the garden was that they had a choice. I could choose autonomy, a life away from God. I can be my own king, or I can make the choice to submit to God as my king. Adam and Eve chose their own autonomy. We wake up with that same choice every day. Am I going to take everything that I have, every resource that I have, every gift that God has given me, every spiritual gift that God has given me, am I going to take that and am I going to claim my own autonomy and serve myself? Or am I going to take all of that resource and move forward and pledge my allegiance to Christ, whatever he asks of me? Now, I'm not standing on a soapbox. I don't get this right every day. I have chosen autonomy before. I've also chosen to pledge my entire allegiance to Christ. It's a daily struggle. He is claiming authority. He's claiming kingship over your life. So daily, what choice are we going to make? As an individual, what choice are we going to make? As a church, what choice are we going to make? As a community, what choice are we going to make? Your individual choices lead to church choices, lead to community choices, lead to country choices. We need to swear our allegiance to Jesus. Now, as the praise team comes up, and, and as the pianist comes up, we're going to play a song called "I Surrender All." The question remains: Is have we surrendered all? To Jesus? Do we believe the claims that he is making? And during this time, as the pianist plays, I Surrender All, I'm going to have the prayer team stand up. We're going to have a couple of them up front and a couple to the sides. And if you are hearing this message for the first time, if you haven't had much experience with Jesus, Maybe you need to surrender your life for the first time to him. Maybe you want somebody to pray with you for that. Maybe you've been coming here a long time. Maybe you've already are a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're somebody who is a committed follower, but has stepped away temporarily. Maybe you need to recommit your life to Jesus. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus. All of your resources, all of yourself, Do you surrender all? I'll ask for you to bow your head and pray as I pray with you. If you want somebody to pray for you, there's people stationed around the room who would be willing to pray with you. Father God, I want to be a person who surrenders my all to you. You've entrusted all of us with your Holy Spirit. You've entrusted all of us with gifts. You've entrusted all of us with resources. And I ask you to guide us and help us submit to your authority, Jesus. Help us surrender all to your mission. Now, God, I know that it can be scary to step out and surrender all. I know it can lead us to sometimes some uncomfortable moments. But Jesus, I want to be the person who commits my life to you because you are the giver of life. You're the source of life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.